Thank you for listening to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. This is Real Sports Talk for the Real Sports Fan. And I definitely appreciate all you Real Sports fans who are listening right now. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do me a huge favor and leave this podcast a five-star rating. That one, two, three, four, fifth, that five-star rating review will definitely be appreciated. If you're listening on any other platform, that could be iHeartRadio, Podomatic, Google Podcasts, wherever, please share the podcast from that platform so that your friends and family can see the podcast. Listen to the podcast, love the podcast, and subscribe. And then you can share with their friends and family. I'm trying to get this podcast to the highest levels of podcastivity, and I need your help to get there. It would truly, truly be appreciated. I have a huge episode for you guys today. Today is Father's Day, so shout out to all the dads out there who listen to the podcast, and thank you for being good dads and good fathers. And because it is Father's Day, I have my father on the podcast with me. We're going to do a age-old tradition that fathers and sons do, and that's talk sports. Uh, my dad, Keith Adams, is online. What's going on, Dad? I'm good. How you doing? Doing good. You know, glad to have you on the show and continue this tradition of honoring dads by having you on the show. So I appreciate you coming on. Not a problem. So we got a lot to get into today, and. Um, one of the reasons that I like having you on the show for Father's Day is that you're one of the reasons that I fell in love with sports, especially boxing. And uh, one of the reasons that I love boxing is it brings me back to being at you know Grandpa and Grandma's house, watching HBO boxing on Saturday nights and watching Roy Jones Jr. and Floyd Mayweather and Oscar De La Hoya and Trinidad, you know, Lance Lewis, those guys from the late 90s, early 2000s era when I fell in love with boxing and the reason I still love it now. And last night we had a big fight between Regis Pro Gray and Daniel Lito Zaria. And I watched it, you know, on the zone and checked out the card. And you were in the building. This was in New Orleans. You were at the event. And before we get into the fight itself, we've been to a few fights in Vegas, you know, going and seeing Floyd Mayweather. How would you describe the difference between going to a Mayweather fight in Vegas? compared to going to see somebody in New Orleans or Reese Progray who's from New Orleans in New Orleans? It actually was a great atmosphere. Uh, I enjoyed it, but, uh, you know, there's nothing compared to Vegas. You know, any fights that are in Vegas, uh, you know, you're going to, you know, T-Mobile Arena, any particular arena, that MGM Grand, wherever you happen to be, um, it's going to be an electric atmosphere. This was... Uh, you know, it was a, a real good atmosphere. You can't compare it to, uh, you know, being in Vegas. There's nothing that, from what I can tell, that compares to being in Vegas for a main, uh, big time fight. Um, you know, if, if, if you're in, if, if you go to Vegas for your first fight, there's, in most cases, unless, uh, which I've never been, unless you've gone to, uh, New York City, possibly, there's probably nothing else that compares to it. But this was a good atmosphere, uh, sold out crowd, uh, you know, uh, enjoyed, uh, the, 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 everything that was included, uh, with the, well, that, that was included with the fight atmosphere, with the events, everything was nice. Okay, now I'm glad to hear that. And like you said, there's nothing that compares to a big time fight in Vegas. Uh, you know, me and you going to the Mayweather fights, and I've been to fights out here in Phoenix. 
And for me, I've gone to fights as a fan. I've also gone to fights as a reporter. Uh, last time I went to a fight out here in Phoenix, it was Ray Valtran versus Jose Pedraza. And I went as a reporter covering the event. And that's a different type of level compared to going as a fan. And one thing I noticed, the difference between going to a fight in Vegas and going to one out here in Phoenix was just the different fans that go. Right? With Vegas, it's an event. So you're going to have the diehard boxing fans like you know myself and you but you also have just people out there because it's a Mayweather event. They just want to be seen. They just want to be around the celebrities. So you have more of an event atmosphere compared to just a big time fight atmosphere. It's how I describe the difference between going to Vegas for a Mayweather fight compared to other cities for other fights. Um, but I haven't like I haven't been to New York for a fight yet. So I definitely want to do that as well and see how the environment compares. I'm pretty sure New York for a fight is is pretty good environment. So. With this fight, we had Regis Prograde for the main event against Danielito Saria. And going into this one, Regis Prograde was a big-time favorite. Uh, Saria, definitely not anything to sneeze at. Only had one loss on his record. Had never been stopped before. Uh, but he did get this fight on short notice, even though he was training prior to this fight. And was in great shape, <laughs> which we saw during the fight as he moved around the ring uh, continuously throughout the, <laughs> throughout the 12 rounds. So when you were watching this fight in the arena, did you think that Prograde was in danger of losing this fight? It depends on how you actually look at the fights. I mean, if you go from the aspect of, uh, you know, him, Prograde being the, the individual that pushed the fight, you know, ring generalship, uh, the ability to be the aggressor, uh, he he brought that part of the fight. He unfortunately, um, from what I could tell, he struggled with how to cut. You know, they cut cut him off with regards to either pinning him in the corners or pinning him on the ropes. Yeah, he did not use his he did not use his left hook, um, or excuse me, his right hook because he was avoiding his left hand the whole fight. And if he would have took one step to the right and throw hooks to his body, he would have stopped him from moving that direction. Um, but he doesn't use his his, his right uh, except for jabbing in most cases. So the the, the what, what I saw basically was he didn't make the necessary adjustments to make the fight um, an action-packed fight. Now, obviously, it takes two to tangle, so you've got to you know you you got to look at you know his opponent and say, hey, he, he did not he did not want anything to do with. Um, trying to fight the, fight to the point where he's going to try to win. He basically was moving around. And I don't know how many punches he averaged around, but it had to be less than 10 um, from what I could tell from watching the fight. Yeah. And, you know, he, you know, he would throw a punch, he would grab, and then he would back away, and then he would circle the ring for two and a half minutes, basically. Yeah. Now, he definitely... Uh, so he, was... Oh, go ahead. So it, it, it just wasn't in a, uh, the most entertaining fight because, it, like I said, it takes two to actually make the fight happen. If you're not willing to get in there and and actually throw punches, uh, you know, and get within distance, because he wouldn't get in, when, would, would never get within distance. He was always backing up off his back foot continuously. Now, whether Paul Grizz won the, uh, whether he won the fight or not, like I said, also it depends on how you look at it. Because 
the Reels actually hit him a few times more than what you expected. And then actually in the first round, that was a knockdown. It was. Yeah. That was that was not a push, but you know, the the the, the way that the fight went, um, it's hard to kick somebody's belt by running away for ninety percent of the fight. Yeah, I'm definitely right there with you. That was a knockdown. I can see how the ref made a mistake in real time because it was very quick where the punch happened and then they kind of collided into each other. So I can see how the ref made a mistake in real time of thinking that it was more of a push compared to a punch. But then when you watch the replay, it was definitely the punch that landed. Uh, he hit Pro Gray square in the face that knocked him down. And honestly, that was the difference on my scorecard. I scored a 114, 113 for Pro Gray. If that knockdown was called, it would have been a draw on my scorecard. Um, but I scored a one point for Pro Gray to knock down in the third round that Pro Gray had. What's the difference? Um, I do agree with you. If you're going to take somebody's title, you need to take it. And I felt like Zaria had a good game plan of trying to draw Pro Gray in to counterpunch him. And he definitely landed some good counterpunches. I thought the 12th round was Zaria's best round. If he would have fought like that the entire fight, he would have won. But like you said, for 90% of the fight, he was moving around. And like I made a joke earlier, he was in great shape because he, I thought eventually he would slow down. When I saw him moving around like that the first few rounds, I was like, okay, eventually he's going to slow down. And this is going to become the fight that we expected because he came into this fight as a power puncher in which we saw that power in the first round. When he landed that shot. That should have been a knockdown. But he decided to change up the strategy. And he, you could tell they threw Pro Gray off. Pro Gray expected him to stay in the middle of the ring as well and to try to throw with him. And he didn't do that. So it was a good strategy, but I felt like they depended too much on trying to counterpunch without being engaging enough in the fight to really take somebody's belts. So I have no problem with Pro Gray getting the decision. The scorecards were a little wide. For I was like, wow, you know, 118-109 was one of the scorecards. I think 117-111. And then the other scorecard had it 114-113 for Zaria. So the scorecards were very, very wide. And But I can see with a fight like this, that's hard to score because of the lack of action, why the scorecards were the way they were. Uh, so I think that Prograde did deserve to keep his belt, and Zaria didn't do enough to take the title from Prograde. So now, yeah. look, looking forward, 140-pound division is kind of becoming the it division in boxing with Teofimo Lopez now at 140 and being a champion, Ryan Garcia moving up to 140. Uh, Javante Tank Davis can always go up to 140. He's done it before and be there. There's rumors that Devin Haney wants to move up to 140 now and fight Pro Gray and sign with Match Room. So looking at the options that are out there, what do you think would be the best path for Regis Pro Gray to take next? I'm not actually sure. It depends on if he has style makes fights. Um, he's the type of fighter that has to, somebody has to engage him because he he will not, you know, unless he learns eventually in the future how to cut off the ring, he's going to have problems with boxers that move around. Yeah. You know, the, the thing the thing with Surreal, the Surreal's fight is, what I noticed was Surreal's tried to win the, he tried to put Sugar Ray Lennox uh, uh, against uh, Hagler yeah. type of fight. Still around. He the last 10 seconds, yeah, the last 10 seconds, you know, that's when he started trying to punch again and engage. But he wouldn't engage for the first two minutes and 50 seconds at all, for the most part, except for a few seconds uh, in, in every one of those particular rounds. 
and you don't have the sugar ray Leonard name, so you they're gonna look at they're not gonna look at you the same way. Yeah, that um, makes a big difference. But right, and also Sugar Ray did fight more uh, within that fight with with uh, Hagler than the ten seconds, but he did he made sure to try to put a stamp on it in the last ten seconds of the round. And that's basically what Surreal basically tried to do. With regards to who he can, who he should fight, um, I don't know. He, he, everybody calls out everybody. Haney has called him out. Uh, the uh, the other two 140 pound champs um, have called them out. Uh, I don't know if Tank Davis. You know that's that's kind of one of those deals. Tank Davis is an extremely uh, a dangerous opponent yeah. for him, I think. Um, I don't think I don't think Haney is as dangerous, but Haney can box from outside um, and basically do what Sharia's did. But he's going to throw more punches and he's going to keep him off the end of his jab. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, they, I think, they actually have to go to the drawing board and try to figure out what's his. You know, they, 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 it's a business. So they got to try to find the best opponent for him that they think, uh, you know, that makes a stylish fight, but also think he, he's, he's going to uh, have the best chance of winning. And with that said, um, I'm not even sure because uh, he, he actually said uh, the the, uh, the other young guy that won forty that just won the belt. Uh, he said he doesn't want to fight him because he doesn't think he's a legitimate 140 pound champion. Oh, he's talking about um, Raleigh, Raleigh Romero. Right. He actually said, I don't want, he said he doesn't deserve. And, and I've seen, you know, I've seen Romero fighting. He's not a great fight. He's not a great tactician. You know, and he, 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 his footwork is extremely sloppy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it may not be that he also mentioned Adrian Brown. So you never know. Um, I think it's, I think it's going to be, but he already said it's going to be about the money. So whichever fight, he may be willing to fight Tank because that's going to be his best money fight. Yeah. You know, but he's got, he may have to put on another performance prior to that so that they can see him at his best against somebody else prior to that. Yeah, and that's the thing, though. With him having this performance where he didn't look the best, it may bring out the fighters that may have avoided him in the past, right? The past few years after he lost to Josh Taylor, He's been getting, he's been winning, but he hasn't had the big time fights. And now that he's with Matchroom and on the zone, I do think he'll have a better chance to get these big time fights. And I definitely could see Devin Haney moving up to 140 because he's a bigger guy. I can imagine making 135 is really hard for him. We've seen him look really drained at the weigh-ins. So I think that's his time that he's growing a little older now and it gets harder, as we all know, to keep weight off as you get older. So for Devin Haney, I can see him moving up. And I think Devin Haney, from his side, he probably looks at this fight and thinks, oh, I can do that. I can give Regis Prograde the same issues Zaria did. And like you said, I'll be busier. And he's better than Zaria. So he can give him the same issues while also throwing more punches, like you said. So Devin Haney's probably looking at this and looking at his chops. Like, oh, I can go up and get a 140-pound title there. Um, I don't blame yeah, but, there, but there's yeah. also, there's also uh, a couple of issues that come with that. He can he can keep him off the end of his jab, but in his last fight he took a lot of punches from a smaller fighter and got hurt. Yeah. So taking having to take punches from a bigger fighter, he may not uh, you know he may not get up 
he may not be able to stagger through the the the, the tenth and eleventh round, you know, as he did in his last fight and get through it. Because he may not be able to get up from that punch. He may not be able to take the punches as well once he moves up to that weight. He struggles to take punches from a smaller fighter at 135 that actually isn't 135. So yeah. you you still got to look at it from that point of view as well. No, that's a very good point. Lomachenko is a normal or natural 135-er, and Regis Progray is one of the most powerful punchers at 140. Now, with Lomachenko, he's a little more craftier as far as it comes to getting on the inside. Uh, Regis Progray is also very knowledgeable on getting on the inside, but Haney may do a better job of keeping Progray away from him compared to Lomachenko, who has great footwork. And with Progray, it's more about his upper body movement. He has kind of an old-school style where he's moving his upper body and he gets on the inside in that way. Uh, but he doesn't have the footwork or foot speed of a Lomachenko. So it would be very interesting to see how that matchup would work out with Devin Haney and Regis Program. I would be interested in that fight. Uh, Teofimo Lopez would be another good one. That would be very, very interesting. Uh, Teofimo Lopez is very, very explosive, very good athlete. We saw that in the fight against Josh Taylor the weekend before where I thought Josh Taylor would be able to win because of his size and be able to keep uh, Lopez away. But Lopez was so explosive and so much better of an athlete than Josh Taylor that he was able to dominate pretty much after the fourth round after he made some adjustments. And I feel like Progray and Lopez would be a really good fight because they both be willing to engage. So I can see that one being a really good fight for fans and for both of them financially as well. You mentioned Javante Tank Davis. He definitely would be willing to engage. It would be, that would be a good fight. But like you said, very dangerous because Tank is, he's a tank. <laughs> when it comes to his power, he is definitely different. Um, Ryan Garcia, I think Progay beats Ryan Garcia pretty easily. And that would be one where he can make good money as well. But I don't see Ryan Garcia taking that fight right now. I think Ryan Garcia is going to want to take a few fights to get his, you know, some wins under his belt again before he takes another big fight and takes a chance at taking a loss. He doesn't want to take two losses in a row like that. So there's some definitely some options out there for Progay going forward. And I'm really liking what I'm seeing in boxing this year. We've had this podcast before where we talked about how a lot of boxers weren't fighting each other. But this year, we're seeing it. We saw David Benavidez, Caleb Plant. We saw Ryan Garcia and Tank Davis. Teofimo Lopez, Josh Taylor. We're getting Errol Spence versus Terrence Crawford this year. So this year, it feels kind of an old-school type of feeling to it where we're getting the boxing matches that we want. And hopefully, this brings more fans into the sport and more fans back into the sport uh, that we haven't had in the years past because of the annoyance of not getting the fights that we want. This year, we're getting the boxing that we want to see. So if you're listening, you've been one of the guys or one of the girls that's been turned off by boxing, it's time to get back into it because we're getting the fights that we want to see in boxing right now. Yeah, we are. And, and the other thing about that is I, the, the funny thing about all of that is as great as Floyd Mayweather was, he his aspiration was to keep that zero. The greater boxers back in the day did not worry about that. They were like, we're going to put on the show. The best is going to fight the best. And you're still going to have an audience after the fact if the best fight the best because you're going to – that's what everybody wants to see anyway. Yeah. So whether you have a, a one loss or two loss on your record and you lose to one of the best fighters in the world, that's not going to affect your ability to make money and your ability to get big fights. Yeah. No, that's totally the way they see it because, right, that's the way they see it because of the fact that Floyd laid a game plan out that was completely different than everybody else's. 
Fought, fought most of the people that he most of the he fought fought great fighters, but it, it was either early in their career when they maybe not have been ready for him, or it may have been later in their career when they didn't have the hand speed or the the ability to, athletically to keep up with him. So you you got to look at everything from you know kind of like with a grain of salt when it comes to Floyd. I love Floyd Mayweather, but he he made this a business and he made it a great business for him. Yeah. No, that's that's definitely true. Uh, I think that I have Floyd as the greatest of all time. And some people do have the argument that you just said that they feel like he fought fighters right at the right time for him. Um, and you know, and some people tried to follow that game plan. But the thing is, he also fought in an era where there were so many more options for him to fight these guys. And some people tried to follow that same game plan, but didn't have the same amount of options. So when they were fighting people trying to wait, they were fighting opponents that weren't catching our interest. While Floyd still had so many options to catch our interest. When, you know, he took off a year and a half, he could come back and fight against a Wymanuel Marquez and, you know, a Ricky Hatton and do those things because there were so many options out there of fighters that would still catch your, capture our imaginations. Uh, so I think Floyd did a great job of that. And Floyd still to this day is... Uh, even take an exhibition fight where he knows he's going to win and, you know, make lots of money. He's been able to master the craft of doing what he loves to do without taking big risks, even until this day with Floyd. So we're going to see what happens the rest of this year with boxing. I'm really excited with the direction that we're seeing in boxing. So let's transition now. We're going to stay in New Orleans. We're going to tra uh, transition to basketball. As the New Orleans Pelicans and Zion Williamson have been in the news a lot lately, uh, Zion for a lot of different things. I know you're not really big on social media, you're not on social media like that, but if you're on social media at all, you know that Zion has been in the news for all things non-basketball related uh, lately with him. And, you know, when it comes to that, I just hope I just hope that he has peace and happiness and, you know, him and his, his mother of his child are able to go forward and have happiness and however that looks for them. And only advice I'll give on that is Zion, just don't use your real name on social media and, you know, maybe delete your Snapchat, bro, uh, when it comes to that. But when it comes to basketball, it's been rumors that the Pelicans may think of trading Zion Williamson for maybe the second or third pick or to a team that can offer a bunch of picks and maybe some role players. And it's because Zion Williamson hasn't been able to stay healthy. Uh, just to give you a little recap of Zion's career, his first season, he only played 24 games. His second season, a lot of people forget about, he did, he did play 61 games the second season. So we know it's possible for him to play a full season. Uh, his third season, he missed the entire season with a foot injury, which we thought was going to be a regular foot injury, a regular broken foot, six to eight weeks, he'll be back, but he ended up missing the whole season. Uh, last year, came out like gangbusters to start the season. The Pelicans were one of the best teams in the West. They were flirting with the top seed. They were right there with the Nuggets. And then he pulled a hamstring and missed the rest of the year. Which normally, if you pull a hamstring, you know, you might be out three, four weeks. If it's a real bad pull, maybe two months. But normally, you don't miss the rest of the season if you pull your hamstring in January. And that's been the issue with Zion is that it seems like he, he hasn't had any catastrophic injuries, right? He hasn't torn an ACL, knock on wood, or torn an Achilles, or had some crazy broken leg like Paul George or Gordon Hayward. He's had what you would think of as injuries that you should recover from that he just hasn't recovered from. And just to give some more background, he's about to enter into his big contract. So because of that second season where he did play 61 games, he made All-NBA that year. And because he made All-NBA, 
his contract was the Supermax contract that he's going to have starting this year, where it's five years, $194 million, which is a lot of money, but compared to some of the NBA contracts out there, isn't actually that bad. So this upcoming year, he'll make $33 million, then 36 38 41 and then the last year the contract 44 which again is a lot of money but not that bad at NBA standards because you got players like Bradley Bill who don't have the potential of a Zion who are making 50 million dollars a year so just to keep it into you know somewhat of perspective so when you think about the information and all the things that have gone on with Zion do you think the Pelicans should look into trading Zion Williamson I think as a, uh, somebody that's on the outside, you really don't have all the details. The information that you need is, is basically you're looking at his God-given ability versus his work ethic. Everything on out, outside of that with regards to, you know, I've read certain things on the Internet with regards to his dealings outside, you know, his personal stuff. That is, you know, as long as he's not pulling a John Morant type of deal that's going to affect um, his face of the franchise type of a situation, then, um, you know, it's, it's basically whether you think that he's going to put in the necessary work um, to keep himself uh, healthy, keep his weight down, and have the necessary, uh, follow the necessary diet, or get a personal chef that's going to provide him with the necessary, uh, um, you know, with the food that's required for him to keep his weight down and be willing to be able to be willing to work to, to put in the work necessary. Cause he's never going to be a small person. Yeah. You know, he, 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 he's, he, unfortunately his body shape is not going to lie, but if he can get himself down to two, two fifty five, two sixty, and stay at that weight, and, um, and, he's, and he shows you that he's willing to do what's required, whether it's to keep a trainer uh, or, or allow the trainer from New Orleans to uh, to work with him constantly and get a dietitian or get a chef so that he can, um, you know, eat the right types of food, understand, you know, what, what at that particular point in time, by this time, I'm assuming he understands what affects his body with regards to what, Makes his weight fluctuate, um, and I know in New Orleans it's hard because food is one of the things that you know we we love. We love the fact that it, that's one of the things that's loved about the Louisiana culture and in the in the, in, uh, the New Orleans area as well as the, the 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 food and the richness of the food, which is not good for athletes because it's just too fattening or too uh, it, it, it it's not uh, a lot of lean related types of food yeah. to keep your body structure where you need to be as an athlete. So you got to have some discipline, you know? So for me, as far as I'm concerned, it's basically they've got to make that decision and they've got to see whether they think he's, he's going to be mature enough to do what he really needs to do to keep his body weight down, to make sure that he, um, you know, is eating the right types of food. And to understand that if you also, you also have to want to be there. That's the other, we don't know whether he wants to be there or not. Yeah. You keep hearing different rumors about he doesn't want to be with his, he, you know, he doesn't spend any time outside, you know, after um, the season in New Orleans, you hear things about he doesn't get, he doesn't, he's not really getting along real well with 
the rest of his teammates. So, you know, obviously rumors are rumors. You have no idea what's true and what's not. Yeah. So you, 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 you've got to be basically be able to say, uh, to David, uh, Griffin, you know, you need to know. And, and part of the, the problem is you say, you say he needs to be able to figure out whether it's worth the risk again to keep him and not trade him. But the fact that they released, that they released Teresa Weatherspoon kind of puts you a bag because that was one of the few people that was able to get in Zion's ear and tell him and make him understand or to try to keep him motivated. So I guess we'll have to wait and see how, what direction they want to go with that. Yeah, that's a very good point that you brought up at the end there. Uh, for you guys and girls who may not know, Teresa Weatherspoon, of course, you know her from being a great basketball player, but she also was an assistant coach for the Pelicans. And I saw, I would watch um, the little series they would do called The Squad. Uh, and you could tell in that little web series that they did that Teresa Weatherspoon had a really good relationship with Zion. And like you said, she was one of the few people that maybe was able to get to him about staying motivated and staying in shape and those things. Now, with staying in shape, Zion this year came in in great shape. And that's why we saw him playing at such a great level to start the year. We saw the Pelicans playing at such a great level to start the season. My thing is, when it comes to trading Zion, I understand the frustration. Being a Pelicans fan is very frustrating, knowing that this team was this good with Zion, and then we missed the playoffs because he got hurt and couldn't come back. But you think about it, in the Western Conference, the way it's set up right now, with a healthy Zion and the rest of his team, we could see the Pelicans in the Western Conference Finals. Now, I don't know if they're good enough to beat a Denver, but outside of Denver, I think they're good enough to beat anybody else in the West right now. You know, and of course, we got the free agency and all that stuff that got to happen. But right now, with a healthy Zion, I believe the Pelicans are the second best team in the Western Conference. And if you trade Zion for, especially if you trade him for the second or third pick, you're taking a chance of going, taking four or five steps back to try to get forward again. And that's a really big risk, right? Now, I'm not as familiar with Scoot Henderson. I believe that's the guy that people think that the Pelicans will go after in the draft. I hear that he's very good. But there's no guarantee he's going to be as talented as Zion when Zion's on the court. Now, get on the court is the key words there. But with Zion being so good, being somebody who has stats like averaging more than 25 points a game on 60% shooting, the first player to do that over the first four years, it's so hard to give up on that potential. If he wants to be there, like you said, that's a good point. If he doesn't want to be there and he's not motivated to be a Pelican, that's you know that's something that you have to deal with and you may have to trade him because of it. But he did sign the max extension. He has five more years under contract with us. So my thing would be give him one more year, see if he can stay healthy. We've seen it before. That's the thing. We have seen it. We've seen him play 60-plus games. See if he can do that again. He has, with all the noise going on around him, he definitely needs to ball out. That's where you quiet all the noise. All the noise about him not playing, all the noise about the stuff going on in his personal life. You quiet that down by balling out. And I think that he definitely wants to ball out, and let's see him do that in a Pelicans uniform. Because we know if him, Brandon Ingram, CJ McCollum, and this past year, it wasn't just Zion. Brandon Ingram missed more than half the season with a toe injury, and CJ McCollum was dealing with injuries all year. Larry Nance, and... Jose Alvarado was dealing with injuries all year. So it was a lot of our team that was hurt. So hopefully we just have uh, a... Go ahead. Yeah, I don't I don't disagree with you on that. I, I really don't. I just 
my thing is is everything everything in life is a risk in one form or another and i understand what you're saying and that's exactly what part of my thinking was you know you you were basically giving up a unicorn this that's the, he's an individual when he gets on the court nobody really can do what he does and that's just it, it, it is what it is unfortunately if he's willing if between him and brandon ingram if they can play 80, 80, 75 to 85 percent of the games, they can be in contention. They are good enough if those two stay healthy, along with basically the, the surrounding cast, obviously. Yeah. But if most of the players um, can get through, uh, you know, uh, uh, through the season playing 70 percent or more of the games, then they have an opportunity to be a real good team, and they, and they also have an opportunity to probably be a top two or three seed. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. So it's a tough decision. I definitely don't envy the position that the GM is in because you have to weigh all the pros and cons. And also the GM knows more about the situation than, you know, fans will. But from the outside looking in, it's like, dang, do I really give up on, like you said, a unicorn talent who, when he was healthy, we were flirting with the top seat in the Western Conference. Do I give up on that and go to rebuilding again? Well, we've already been through this process, you know, as the New Orleans Hornets, we went through this process with Chris Paul, where we gave, we had to trade him away and then rebuild. Went through this process with Anthony Davis, trade him away, had to rebuild. Do you want to do that again to the Pelicans fans when we have a unicorn type talent in Zion who could change the franchise? He could be the Giannis, you know, to our Bucks. He could be the Joker to our Nuggets. He could, he's that talented. So I definitely don't want to give up on that. And imagine the frustration if he does go to a different team and he balls out. He ends up playing 60, 65 games, and he's an MVP candidate for a different team. How just bad that would be for the franchise and how yeah, long it would take the, to recover. Yeah, that's the risk. So like I said, I, I understand where everybody's thinking. That's why I said, you know, the, 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 the actual – People within the organization are going to know a lot more than we do. Yeah. Most people outside of the organization, especially Pelicans fans, are saying so it, it's probably 70 30 just saying keep him. Because if you can get him healthy, get his mind right, this team can be extremely good. Yeah. So we, and you know, that's just the thing, you know, and you're hoping that it, it you're hoping he's, he's going to end up uh, like the player in Philly that had all, all the problems. With, Joel Embiid. Um, injured with Joel Embiid because he, he actually got to the point within his fourth or fifth year where he started to be able to play the majority of the games, 80% of his games, 75% of his games. And it made a huge difference to Philly. And it would do the same thing for the, uh, for the New Orleans Pelicans if he was able to stay healthy. Yeah, I'm definitely right there with you. So now let's transition. We're going to stay in the 2019 draft. You go from the number one pick to number two pick. John Morant was also in that draft, and people have made their jokes about the 2019 draft. It's definitely uh, had its ups and downs as far as the players in that draft. And John Morant is another very talented player. He is someone who is kind of a unicorn himself. We've seen explosive guards before of his size, but he is his hops and jumping ability and ability to dunk on anyone is definitely unique and his speed like when you watch him play it seems like he's in fast forward compared to everybody else like he's so quick so fast so explosive on the court and he has 
been able to put Memphis on the map as far as their team and them being title contenders. But he's been dealing with issues outside of basketball. So with him, this second offense of flashing a gun on social media on IG Live, Instagram Live, has landed him a 25-game suspension. Now, the previous time it happened, he was in a strip club and he was dangling the smaller gun while he was in the strip club on IG Live. And he got suspended eight games and he did a quote-unquote counseling he did an interview with Jalen Rose where he was like, I understand what I did wrong and this isn't going to happen again. And then literally a month and a half later, it happened again. Uh, this time he was in a car with his friends and they're dancing, turning up, as the young people say, and having a good time. And he's and his friend turns the camera towards him and he has a gun in his hand. And he turns it back real quick, but obviously the damage was done because he's a famous athlete. People are going to freeze frame, stuff like that and put it out there and it was announced uh, yesterday that he was or Friday I should say that he was suspended for 25 games so when you hear 25 games for John Morant is it too little too much just right I would say um, probably too little because of the offense um, the fact that he repeated the same offense he hasn't gained any maturity. Yeah. He, I understand that he's a young, he's very young. But if you if you do something once and you get a slap on the hand and you don't realize um, the opportunity to uh, you know become a more mature person with regards to that, and you do something again, then you're not maturing. The people around you are not allowing you to mature. And in his particular case, when you're that young, you're that famous, You, in a lot of cases, you think you can do whatever you want to do and get away with it. Yeah. And if you're allowed to get away with it, then you end up continuing and you know, you're chasing your tail. You continue to do the same things over and over again regardless because you think, I'm special. I can get away with. I can do whatever I want and get away with. Unfortunately, but the part of the problem is is his. It probably is the, the group of friends that he has, because and nobody's really. He, he's, he probably has a lot of yes men around him, guys that are just going because he's the one taking care of them. He's the one that that's been. He's been hanging out with. Sometimes you've got to move on from the friends that are not that doesn't have your best interests at heart. Yeah, you know. So, and that's unfortunate for him. I, I, I think they needed to do more because half a season probably would have made him think even more than the twenty-five games. And obviously, there are certain things that he has to accomplish before he can come back on the court, anyway. But in a lot of cases, he may he's going to do what's necessary to get on the court after twenty-five games. There's no guarantee that he's going to learn his lesson from the twenty-five game suspension. He may, he may not. Um, you know, but he's also got to understand he's the face of his franchise in the face, one of the, um, well, more, one of the more well-known faces in the NBA, you know, and this is a business, you know, and when you're, when you're, when you start to affect everybody's money with regards to that business, you know, there's consequences that come with that. Yeah, no, nah, that's definitely very, very true. When I saw 25 games, 
I thought, okay, a little lighter than I thought it would be, but I didn't have a problem with it. Uh, the reason I didn't have a problem with it is that 25 games is just enough to cost them a lot of money. Uh, with the new rules of how many games you have to play to qualify for certain awards, he won't qualify for any of the big-time awards, All-NBA, MVP, any awards like that that can lead to bonus money, he won't qualify for. So between the suspension he got last year and the suspension he's having next year, it could cost him upwards of $50 million based on the bonuses that his contract has, right? Because of what I described earlier with Zion making All-NBA, his contract that he's going to start this year was a Supermax because of that. John Morant, he won't be eligible for a Supermax extension because he didn't make All-NBA this year, which some people can argue that he should have, but because of the suspension, a lot of the voters didn't vote for him because of that, and he won't be eligible next year. So I think the financial part of it definitely will hit him hard, and the 25 games itself is without pay, so I believe that's like $7 million, or a little over $7 million that's going to cost him. Now, of course, he's not struggling. He's still going. He's still filthy rich. He's going to be fine, but I think that the fact that he knows that he probably cost himself maybe $60 million in total salary, going to hit him, hit him a little hard. Now, hopefully it hits him hard enough to where, like you said, he does actually learn his lesson. And with the team, it's going to hit them hard. They've played without job before and famously have been playing well without him. They do have a really good backup point guard who will be a starter on most teams and Tyus Jones behind him who can hold down the fort until he comes back. But it will affect them. And I think that 25 games is just enough. I probably would have went 30, 35. But 25 is just enough to really hit you and be like, okay, this is serious. I can't do this again. And it's weird because it's such an unavoidable thing, right? Like, all you got to do is not record yourself, right? And I'm getting to a point now where I'm on social media. You know, I'm 33 years old, so I'm on social media. And I grew up, I grew up without it. But it was starting to come into the mainstream when I was in high school. Like I had MySpace and then I was introduced to Facebook when I got to college. But someone his age, they don't know a world without it. So they their whole thing is this is how they grew up with sharing everything on social media. So for them, it's different. For me, it's just a tool to promote the podcast, to create content for people to come to the podcast. It's a business tool for me mostly. And I'll share little things here and there, you know, maybe a funny video or something like that. But for me, it's business. For them, it's a part of life. This is what they know is sharing everything on social media and showing everybody what they're doing. So it's a point where after the first one, it should have hit them like, okay, I don't need to share everything I'm doing. Everything doesn't have to be on display. And I also just don't get the gun thing. Like, why do you have to have the gun? If you have a gun truly for protection, it should be in your glove compartment in your car, in the center console, in there. That's it. You shouldn't have it on you in the strip. You don't need in the strip club. They got security. And you can, there's no way none of the strippers got nothing because obviously they don't have enough clothes on to hide anything. So why do you have a gun in the strip club with you? Why do you have the gun in the car? Like, that part, well, for me, just doesn't make sense. All right, well, think about it this way. Uh, um, the, what I'm thinking is, is okay. You have to have the people in your life that's going to be able to tell you. If you making, you take away the seven million, approximately he's going to lose this year, and you're you're looking at about 
Um, a little less than a third of the game. So you're probably looking at 16, 17 millions you still going to make. All of the individuals, if you follow how they like, you know, even there's a lot of people that didn't have that kind of money going up and they end up, you get that money, you lose your mind, you go crazy. Yeah. But in his particular case, if you follow the individuals and what is the NBA, NFL, whatever, but the individuals who made money outside of the game, the individuals who, um, if you, if you realize stayed out of trouble for the most part, he has enough money to, he doesn't need a gun. He can hire a bodyguard. Yeah. So if, if it's about safety, you can have hire a bodyguard. A lot of, uh, as far as the aspects of, uh, you know, the social media thing, regardless, it's a common sense thing. It's just common sense. You, I mean, even though it's not illegal to do it, unless you're in a specific location, you know that 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 is something that's it's 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 dumb at the the lowest form and it's asinine at the highest form. Yeah. You don't do things like that. You've got to be able to think ahead of time enough to understand when you did that, especially when you got the second chance to get away from not doing that again. Yeah. Try to make some adjustments in your life to understand that, hey, look, what I did was wrong. Or even if it wasn't criminal, understand that everything you do affects the amount of money and um, your ability to make money later in life. Yeah. No, that's definitely very, very true. And for me, we... The first time the incident happened when he got suspended eight games, we talked about it on the podcast, and we also talked about all the other stuff that went on that he didn't get in trouble for. The incident where the Indiana Pacers thought that somebody from his entourage was pointing a laser into their bus. Uh, the kid who got beat up at his home at a pickup basketball game. All the other incidents surrounding him. The time his mom called him to go and quote-unquote check somebody at the mall about her having issues getting shoes and stuff like that. It seems like he is surrounded by the wrong people, not just his friends, but it seems like his parents from now looking in haven't done the best job of handling the situation. And I will give them grace because it's new for them as well. Like coming into all this money and your son being in the NBA, I can imagine if I was a thousand times better of a basketball player and I made it to the NBA, it would be an adjustment for you and my mom as well, adjusting to that type of just all the attention, all the things that come with it. But just from, like you said, a common sense standpoint, I can imagine you and my mom, if I was out here doing this, being like, yo, what, like, just being so disappointed and knowing, like, y'all didn't raise me to do this stuff. And it would just be like, what are you doing? Why are you risking all this to, quote, unquote, look a certain way or to be down with a certain group when that group isn't going to help you if you mess around and get yourself kicked out of the NBA? They're not going to be there for you then. So why are you trying yeah, to do this still, now? This still comes down to your basic core values and the individuals yeah. that you uh, find yourself around because those individuals, if they're truly um, 
gonna be your friends or the truth. They're gonna they're gonna tell you the truth. Saying, look, man, you, you you're messing up by doing this this way. There's no reason for you to be. Uh, you know, there's no need for you to carry a gun. Yeah. Okay, and there's definitely no need for my friend to actually videotape me with a gun. If you're supposed to be my friend, and you you should understand that that's gonna cause a problem the first or second time. Yeah. No, that's true. And like I said, the first time it was him recording himself. Like, so that the first okay. time, yeah, the first time it was literally him holding the, the phone with dangling the gun in the strip club. Like, for what? You know, it just doesn't make any sense. But like you said, hopefully this time he truly does learn. He, you know, he said all the right stuff and it's falling on deaf ears right now because you did it. You messed up so close together. So he really has to prove himself. But he is young enough to where... He can go if he's, you know, scot free of trouble for the next five years. We're going to look back at this as like a turning point, and like, okay, he really learned his lesson, and now he's one of the, he's the face of the league. And I know people don't like to hear that athletes are role models, and you say your parents should be your role models, but for a teenager, they're going to see the cool basketball player as the role model, right? They're not going to like they. You have your parents there, and you, you know, your parents depend on how they parent. You know, it should definitely have an impact in your life. But as a kid, you're going to see the cool basketball player who's making millions of dollars, and you're going to gravitate towards that, right? And, you know, for my generation, it was Allen Iverson. Allen I a lot of kids wanted to be like Allen Iverson because he was the cool basketball player who was making the money and also had the quote-unquote street cred and all that stuff. John Morant is that for this generation. Like, if I go play basketball now, I go to a gym, pick up games, some high school kids come in, you can tell how influenced they are by John Morant. They're hitting a three, they're doing the gritty dance like he does. If they have hops and they can dunk, they're trying to dunk on everybody like John Moran does. He has a very he has a very big influence over the youth. And him displaying this behavior of not only not being smart, but it's dangerous to play with a gun in that way. It could have an influence over the youth in that way. So he has to think about it in that way as well. Uh, and even like I said, I know athletes don't like to think about it that way. A lot of them don't. Right, Charles Barkley has the famous commercial about not being a role model, but they are. Like, it's, and it's not something that may not be fair to them, but it comes with the responsibility of being an NBA player and making the money that you make is that young people do look up to you. Uh, so I think that's something that John Moran has to take into account, and hopefully he learns his lesson. And hopefully, twenty-five games is enough. We'll have to wait and see, but you know, you just really, you know, you wish him the best, and hopefully that this truly is a lesson learned that he won't repeat again. We just have to hope that for John Morant going forward. So we're going to take a music break right now. And then when we come back, we're going to count down our top 10 centers of all time. Now, of course, you know, this countdown comes up because Nikola Jokic just led the Denver Nuggets to the NBA championship. So I wanted to see, you know, where my dad ranks Nikola Jokic all time compared to me. Of course, being different generations, we're going to see where our lists compare and contrast in that way. So we're going to take a quick music break and be right back. Check it out. I call it. Yeah. 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 For my brothers with daughters, I call this. For my brothers with daughters, I call this. For my brothers with daughters, I call this. For my brothers with daughters, I saw my daughter send a letter to some boy her age who locked up. First I regretted it, then caught my rage. Like, how could I not protect her from this awful face? Never tried to hide who I was. She 
was taught and raised like a princess But while I'm on stage, I can't leave her defenseless Plus she see me switching women, poppers on some hip shit She heard stories of her daddy thugging So if her husband is a gangster, can't be mad, I love her Never for her, I want better Homie in jail, dead dad, wait till he come home You can see where his head's at Niggas got game, they be trying to live He seen your mama crib, plus I'm sure he know who your father is Although you real, plus an honest kid Don't think I'm slow, I know you probably had that chronic lid You 17, I got a problem with it She look at me like I'm not the cleanest father figure But she rockin' with it For my brothers with daughters, I call this For my brothers with daughters, I call this Not saying that our sons are less important Said Nas, go and get your kids She's on Twitter I know she ain't gonna post no pic Of herself underdressed No inappropriate shit, right? Her mother cried when she asked Said she don't know what got inside this child's mind She planted a box of condoms on her dresser Then she Instagrammed it At this point I realize I ain't the strictest parent I'm too loose, I'm too cool with her Should've drove more time to school with her I thought I dropped enough Jews on her Took her for private school So she can get a balance to public school They too nurture teen talents He makes us have precious little girls uh, For my brothers with daughters, I call this For my brothers with daughters, I call this Not saying that our sons are less important uh, 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 uh. For my brothers with daughters, I call this For my brothers with daughters, I call this Not saying that our sons are less important uh, yeah. And I ain't trying to mess your thing up But I just want to see you dream Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break. So now we are back to count down our top 10 centers of all time. Really interested to see how our list compare and contrast here. So, Dad, who is your number 10 center of all time? Uh, my number 10 is, uh, is actually uh, Jokic. Oh, he, he falls right in there. He he. he, he he barely makes it, but he gets in in the top ten. Okay, so I have Jokic a little higher than ten, um, but I could definitely see him at that at that spot. When I was making my list, I really struggled with where to put him um, because he still has so much career left. So I definitely see him moving up your list uh, as he goes forward. He's only twenty eight years old, uh, and the way he plays, he can be dominant till he's you know higher thirties because he doesn't. It's not like he needs athleticism to dominate. Uh, and right. he, so he's definitely going to move yeah. up the list and be, continue to collect accolades. And so Nicole Yogesh, number 10, okay, I definitely can, can see that for sure. Uh, for me, I have Patrick Ewan at number 10. Uh, Patrick Ewan was, for you youngins out there, I can say that now, I'm getting a little older, I can say youngins. 
for you youngins out there. Uh, Patrick Ewan was someone who played in an era where there were a lot of really good centers. Uh, and he was able to stand out in his own way. He did lead the Knicks to two finals appearances and one where he really had a really good chance to win. And a lot of people still blame John Starks to this day uh, for his shooting performance in Game 7 against the Rockets in those finals. But Patrick Ewan was an 11-time All-Star for his career or during his time with the Knicks. I didn't count his time afterwards where he was older and shouldn't have been playing for the Sonics and the Magic. But with the Knicks, he averaged 23 points a game, 10.4 rebounds, shot 51% from the field, and was an 11-time All-Star. And was somebody who his scoring ability from the mid-range and post was really good. So he gave you variety, especially for that time. Like, of course, now it's different with someone like a Jokic hitting step-back threes over Anthony Davis. He wasn't doing that because that wasn't what centers did back then. But for that time, he was a really good shooter from the center position. So I have Patrick Ewing at number 10. Uh, who do you have at number 9? I actually have uh, Bob McAdoo at number 9. Ooh, Bob McAdoo. That's somebody who I did not have on my list. Uh, Bob McAdoo. So tell us youngins about Bob McAdoo. Well, I mean... You got to understand that the game has changed so much, so most people don't even realize who Bob McAdoo is or what he accomplished. He averaged almost 35 points a game for like four years straight. Mm. He, you know, was 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 all NBA a couple of years in a row. Uh, but he, you know, he played in an era in the, the late uh, late 60s, early 70s, you know, mid 70s. And he didn't. Most people didn't know him as a player until he played with uh, until he played with the Lakers. But uh, you know, prior to that, he was a great, great offensive player. He wasn't the best defensive player. He, he, he was adequate, but he wasn't a great defensive player. And that's part of the reason that I that I had uh, Nikola Jokic as ten right now because he's not a great defensive player. You got to look at both sides of the court when it comes. Now, obviously, on the offensive end, he's a skill above there. A lot of other centers in this in that league, but as far as everything else is concerned, is he's he can't he doesn't he, he he may not be a liability, but he can be a liability on it. But he also is playing in the area where he may not make that much of a difference. Okay, no, that's a great pick right there. I knew Bob Baggett was a great scorer. A lot of people talk about how he you know at even at a later stage of his career was able to come off the bench and be a great scorer for some championship teams. So that's a really good pick right there with Bob McAdoo. Now, my number nine guy was not a great offensive player, <laughs> right? Uh, but he was adequate enough on offense while being dominant on defense enough to be a three-time defensive player of the year while also being the best player on the finals team. I'm talking about Dwight Howard is who I have at number nine. A lot of people will turn their face up at that because Dwight Howard, for some reason, has been – He's been viewed as something that he's not because a lot of people, you know, look at him as this goofy guy and or some people will even say, you know, he's soft because Kobe called himself one time when it's the total opposite. Uh, Dwight Howard was the opposite of someone you consider soft. Eight-time All-Star, I mentioned three-time Defensive Player of the Year, five-time rebounding champion. So he was somebody on the defensive end who truly dominated the game, especially in his prime in those Orlando years. Even when he went to L.A. for that one year and then on to Houston, he still was a dominant defensive force in the NBA. And a lot of people talk about, man, we never got the LeBron James versus Kobe Bryant finals that we wanted. The reason you never got those finals is Dwight Howard. A lot of people try to act like that never happened. 
But the Eastern Conference Finals, Dwight Howard led the Orlando Magic past LeBron James and those Cleveland Cavaliers. And now, of course, it's a team game, but when you look at those individuals, Dwight Howard was so dominant defensively that he made it so easy for his team. And offensively, even though he never had the great offensive package, he wasn't Akeem Olajuwon, who, of course, we'll talk about later in the countdown, he was able to give you in his prime 23, 24 points a game while also blocking three shots and also being able to dominate the boards. So I have Dwight Howard at number nine on my list. Uh, do you have Dwight Howard on your list at all, Dan? I don't have him on the list. He's, uh, I looked at it and saw him top 12, top 13 possibly. Okay. Um, because it's in a lot of the later years kind of shunned shun you off of Dwight Howard as, you know, as far as how dominant a player he was. Because when he was mm-hmm. in Orlando, he was one of the better NBA centers that, that played the game. Um, but I just had to keep him outside of my top 10 because of the other players that I have ahead of him that I thought, whether it was offensively or they were just as good defensively as him or better offensively, that I, I, I did, not, did not have him in the top 10. Okay, no, I definitely respect that for sure because, like you said, after the Orlando years and I would say somewhat there in the L.A. and Houston years, he kind of fell off the map a little bit. And you have other centers on the list who were more consistent throughout their careers. So I definitely can see where you're coming from there. So who do you have at number eight? I have actually uh, Patrick Ewing at eight. Okay. So Patrick Ewing at eight. Uh, And for Patrick Ewing... When you, you know, watched uh, the Knicks back then and during that era, it was a center-heavy era, right? And it's funny because now we're getting back to centers being the best players in the league, right? Jokic, Embiid, Giannis isn't a center, quote-unquote, but he's a big man. So you think about the three best guys in the league right now, you can have an argument all three guys are, quote-unquote, centers. And back then, of course, Jordan was the guy who dominated, but you had a center-heavy league with, Patrick Ewing and David Robinson, Alonzo Mourning, Dikembe Mutombo, so many great big men during that time. And Patrick Ewing was one of those big men that stood out even amongst the great big men of that era. So I definitely could see why you would have Patrick Ewing there at number eight on your list. Speaking of that era, I have another big man from that era on my list at number eight. I have David Robinson at number eight on my list. Uh, reason I have David Robinson there, defensive player of the year, MVP, scoring champion, 1994, famously scored, was it 72 points, if I remember correctly, to win the scoring title, went crazy in the last game. And a lot of people underrate him because he didn't win a championship until Tim Duncan came along. And Tim Duncan, of course, is a better player of all time than David Robinson. So a lot of people view him as, oh, he was the second best player, or even that last championship year, where it was his last year, he wasn't one of the top two or three players on the team anymore. But when you look at the years before Tim Duncan got there, David Robinson was an absolute monster, man. Absolute monster athletically. I went back and just saw some of his highlights because, you know, again, I was very young during his prime. But what he was doing as far as going coast to coast, up and down the court, being able to get a rebound, outlet, and break and then beat everybody down, and was very skilled, left-handed player. I think David Robinson has become very underrated as the years have gone along. Uh, do you have David Robinson on your list? I have him on the list. 
Okay. okay. I, have at, I actually have them at five, but okay. Yeah. Once we get to that, uh, we can kind of get into more detail up with regards to. He wasn't the. He, he's a he's a ab, ab, absolute great athlete. Most people didn't realize that when he yeah. was playing. For sure, for sure, and we'll definitely get into more detail when we get to that spot on your list. So I have Dave Robinson at number eight. So who do you have at number seven? I actually got Will at seven. Okay. Which is, I'm, I'm sure, a lot of people consider that really, uh, you know, he, he should be a lot, uh, you know, further mm -hmm. down the list. But mm -hmm. Will was, unfortunately, Will's size made him. He's a, he was a unicorn. He was a one on one one of one type of player in that particular time frame when he was playing. Will was five inches taller than everybody else he basically played. Um, you know, so you it, it, you shouldn't have to take away from what he did because he dominated so much. But you look at it and you say, there was nobody that had his physical size, his physical talent, um, you know, his, you know, his physical strength, and just dominated because of it. I mean, he still was a great player. He just kind of have me, have me, um, have him further down the list than maybe a lot of other people would. I definitely can see that reasoning. I have Will Chamberlain a little higher on my list, but I struggle with that because Will Chamberlain was not only before my time, but he's before your time. So it's kind of hard to really get a grasp on how great he was. The stats are ridiculous, <laughs> right, when it comes to him. Uh, 50 points a game, he averaged in one season. But like you said, he was such he was so ahead of his time with his athletic ability, right? Because you hear stories about him running track and that he was a, also a great tennis player. And he was one of those guys, if he was born in 1990, I think he would still be a great player today. But of course, he wouldn't be the one of one. He would be one of many today, like him and Giannis would probably go back and forth at it because they would be, you know, the same caliber of athlete. While in his day, like you said, he was him by himself and you had no one who could really compete with him athletically. So I see why you have him down at seven. It's, it's a really tough place to, a really tough person to rate because of the time he played in. So I can see why you have him there. Who I have at seven, I have Nikola Jokic at seven. Some people might think that's too high already, but when you look at what he's already accomplished, two-time MVP already. Uh, already had one of the best playoff runs we've ever seen. Right When I did a series where I rated my top ten playoff runs of all time a couple years ago, and looking back at that list, he's definitely in that list now. I had to move somebody out of that top ten when you look at what he did this year, damn near averaging a triple-double, being able to beat some what well, some people would consider great centers along the way. And like a Rudy Gobert, who's a three-time defensive player of the year, not one of my best centers, definitely not going to be on this list for either of us, but he's somebody who, if people like it or not, you're a three-time defensive player of the year, you're most likely going to make the Hall of Fame. And Rudy Go he ate Rudy Gobert out for lunch. Second round, DeAndre Ayton, not somebody who's going to be on this list anytime soon, but a very talented individual. Joker ate him up for lunch. Anthony Davis, top 75 all time. Joker ate him up for lunch. Get to the finals, 
Bam out of bio, undersized center. They try to do so many different things to heat with the zone and sending double teams and all these different things. Doesn't matter. He ate him up for lunch. He can get you 30 points, 10 rebounds, 10 assists very easily. Uh, a lot of people say he's the best passing big man of all time. So when you look at what he's been able to do so far and his skill set, I have him at number seven because of that. Okay, we really, you really can't argue with that. Um, but like I said, I, I just look at it, and I guess I, because with the era that I actually grew up in, with you had individuals like David Robinson, Patrick Ewing, um, Akeem Olajuwon, they were so good defensively. Yeah. You know, that, that they're, they, it, it made a difference on the other end of the court to the point where they won, they won you games with their defensive ability. And that's the only thing I, that, that you know, I'm, man, I understand it's a different game now. So you, you're going to look at it from a completely different point of view. But I saw Jokic just move out of people's way and they go get layups. Yeah. Now, he's definitely had moments on defense, want... so it's bad, for sure. Right. And the point I'm just trying to make is, is that in a game that's a two- or three-point game, you know, nowadays it doesn't really make a difference because they're scoring – 120, 130 points a game, where back then it was, you know, 85, 87. Yeah. So the the, the, the two points that you, um, uh, either you were blocked or you were affect them not being able to make that particular, uh, that layup or that shot, that could have been the difference in the game. Yeah. No, that's a that's a very good point, and that's one of the reasons I don't have them higher is because, you know, the centers I have higher on this list are definitely better defensively. So now let's get to who you have at number six. I've got Moses Malone at number six. Okay, so we, we both have Moses Malone at six. This is our first time having the same person in the same spot. So for us youngins again, what made Moses Malone so great? He just was a dominant player in his era. And he wasn't the big, you know, the, I do the Will Chamberson comparison. He wasn't, he wasn't a bad athlete, but he wasn't the best athlete. Yeah. He, but he, he was one of those, he, he played so hard. Uh, he dominated the game, um, with his, his, his physical will to be able to play, uh, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, Moses was a big, a, a natural big man, yeah. you know, playing the position, but he wasn't, you know, the one-of-one, one, you know, like Will Chamberlain was. They had other players in this era that were as big, as strong, um, probably had were, were better athletes in some cases than he was. But he played the game, and, and his his ability to go get rebounds, his ability to block shots, his ability to dominate the game on the inside from, you know, with, the, with his back to the basket was all things that, that – you know, you ex you basically expected from him. He did it all the time, and he never took any many games off. When he was playing, he was playing. Yeah. You know, he he just he went on and dominated. Um, and even the players, in some cases, that were better athletes than him, he dominated because of his will. Yeah, I love that you brought up his will. Uh, rebounding is a will stat. And he's one of the greatest rebounders of all time, a six-time 
rebounding champion, uh, someone who was known for being able to get offensive rebounds very easily. Like a lot of his points came off of, I'm getting to this rebound before you do, and I'm going to put it back up. Uh, Three-time MVP. Uh, a lot of people don't know about Moses Malone. He was not only dominant, but one of the best players in the league during that time. And a lot of people know about the famous full, full, full speech that he had during the playoffs when the 76ers won the championship. He was somebody who knew, like, you put him next to Dr. J, you know you had a championship quality team. Uh, Moses Malone, man, very underrated all time. But I feel validated that we both have my number six. So I'm like, okay, I'm doing something right uh, with, with my list here. So before we get to the top five, can you please recap your 10 through six for the people? Yeah, I have uh, Nicola Jokic at 10, Bob McAdoo at nine. I have Patrick Ewing at eight. I have Wilt Chamberlain at seven. I have Moses Malone at six. All right, so for me at 10, I have Patrick Ewing. Nine, Dwight Howard, eight, David Robinson, seven, Nikola Jokic, and six, Moses Malone. So we're going to take our last music break. When we come back, we're going to count down our top five NBA centers of all time. As you can see, I'm already learning so much just in the top 10 through six. So I can't wait to see what our top five are. So we're going to take one more music break and be right back. Manifested in flesh and bone Using breath of fresh air in this world to shit You was born to be a soldier, don't ever forget Hit back when hit You was forced, that's effective All these bitches and women Son, please be selective This is California, can't stick your dick in everything We will survive necessarily by any means No man ever hold you down or suppress you It's the 90s, the police just arrest you Disrespect you, on occasion take life By the time you come of age, they probably blast on sight It's a shame they protect him, but try to serve us When your neck is on the line, stand ground and bust Ain't got we trust, but just in case Keep it loaded and locked, ready to rock And shake the spot, the foundation In your blood, realize you can only run the streets so long. Then the streets run you into the ground and gone. Kinda rough trying to teach you what's right from wrong. Same shit, different day, it's the same old song. If the time ever comes that I meet my match, get control of my assets. Fuck starting from scratch. Take care of your mother, keep yourself on track. Just as niggas get behind you, don't mean they got your back. Be wherever the serpent is the time in life. The motherfucker will strike and try to make you lose sight. Don't be a fake motherfucker trying to keep shit real. Feel the sex with idle threats when no guts to kill. Son, if you ever pull heat, then use it. If you got a chance to walk away, then do it. Total domination takes full concentration. In all situations, a solid foundation. Now 
foundation, beginning of a new generation. I remember hospital hallway pacing. I was anxious as fuck to see your face shine, only to find that yours looked like mine. So it's like I'm living twice at the exact same time. This life you can't press, stop the press rewind. Gotta live to the fullest, never follow behind. No man, have your own plan, expand your mind. Ain't no paper thing, game to raise, wanna be thugs. This is nothing but love. Be a satellite mugs. Take heed when it's your turn to bring you life. Make sure it's the woman you gon' make your wife Be prepared for the worst, but expect the best No matter where life takes you, come home to the west Survival takes more than just cats and guns That's worse to live by, from a father to a son Foundation Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damien Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break. So now we are back to finish off our countdown of the top 10 centers of all time. You heard us count down 10 through 6. So now let's get to 5 through 1. Dad, who's your number 5 center of all time? Uh, I have David Robinson at number 5. Okay, so why do you have David Robinson uh, so high on your list? Well, like I said, I... I, I the area that I grew up in, you have uh, probably either athletically or um, back to the basket type of centers. You look at the the, the games that were played between David Robinson, Hakeem Olajuwon, um, a little bit of Shaq era, as well as um, Patrick Ewing. Those were that's a probably, and that's just my personal opinion. That's the best era for centers that they, that's, the NBA has ever had. Yeah. Um, and he was one of the best out of those, out of that group. He was probably, in, in, in the city, it's just crazy, but he was probably a better defensive um, player than, than, than Patrick Ewing. Okay, yeah. And, and that's crazy to say, and as far as being able to run the court, he was he could run the court with most of the basket with the centers today. Oh, for sure. Yeah, he was a great athlete. So you you give him, you got to give him, and he didn't have the uh, the the, athlete, the the players around him to to give him all the necessary championships that you think that he maybe should have won. But his individual athleticism and his individual defensive prowess was ridiculous. You know, and he scored because he also, I mean, he wasn't great back to the basket, but his quickness was so, he was so quick that he would get to the goal with ease in a lot of cases. Now, you make a great case for David Robinson at number five for sure. Like you said, great athlete, great defensive player, one defensive player of the year, several all-defensive teams. Uh, David Robinson definitely deserves his flowers. 
And with this list, that's what it's made for, to give someone like Dave Robinson his flowers. But speaking of great defensive players, my number five, some people may argue, is up there for greatest defensive player of all time. I got Bill Russell at five. Now, I know some people are going to say, wow, that's really low for Bill Russell. The man got 11 rings. My thing is with Bill Russell, offensively, he didn't really give you much, right? I understand it was a different game back then, but he only averaged, I think his highest season was 18 points a game. Um, so, and he played with eight other Hall of Famers, right? So when you talk about winning those championships, the fact that he has, you know, 11 compared to someone like Wilt, who I think I finished with two, it's because he had better teams. He played with John Havlicek. He started his career with someone like a Bob Cousy and all these other players who made the Hall of Fame, you know, Sam Jones and those guys. So for me, I have him at five because I know he was a great defender. Uh, there's a great documentary on Netflix now that kind of goes more into his career and shows you more footage of him. If you're somebody who's my age or younger or even older, uh, you should go and watch it just because we don't have the knowledge of him or we didn't have the footage of him uh, that really showed how great he was. So I do appreciate his greatness, but again, he played in the era where it was him, it was Wilt, and then who else was it? So it's hard to really rank him higher than that, but I have Bill Russell at number five on my list. So who do you have at number four? At number four, I have actually Akeem Olajuwon. Oh, okay. Akeem Olajuwon at number four on your list. So why do you have Akeem Olajuwon at four? I'm going to repeat this over and over again. It was the best era with regards to centers in basketball, probably, you know, I must say late 80s to the 2000, you know, 2002 um, time frame. Yeah. And he was probably the, I would say he has the, he has the best footwork of any, maybe athlete in any sport. If you watch him, the way he were, was able to get by Robinsons and the UNs, um, and and Hakeem was uh, probably six ten. Yeah, he, he wasn't was, a he was seven one, man. seven two. Right. He, but he, his ability, his footwork was was immaculate, and and the fact that his timing was great when it came to blocking shots too. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I, I have him that I have him at four. Um and he played with a lot of he played with a lot of players that, you know, when he he obviously they had to get by and depending on, you know, how you look at it, either get by the Eastern Conference champion which is you read him, um Jordan and the Bulls, um, or they had to get by uh you know, San Antonio in the West. Uh, uh, so it, it wasn't easy uh, for him to, because he didn't he didn't have the teammates that a lot of other players uh, in that era did have to make it to the final. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, Kim Olajuwon definitely was one of the few players you can say didn't have the true sidekick until he got Clyde Drexler. And that was the second half of the 95 season when the second championship. And the first time he made it to the finals, a lot of people forget he made it to the finals in the 80s with Ralph Sampson. And Ralph Sampson, you know, before the injuries, was a pretty good player. But he didn't have the sidekicks of some other players that are definitely on this list as well. Um, 
My number four, I have Will Chamberlain at four. Uh, Will Chamberlain is somebody I struggled with. We talked about it earlier because of the era he played in, because he was so much of a better athlete than the athletes he played against. But 50 points a game for a season, uh, led the league in assists one year just to prove that he could do it. <laughs> Will Chamberlain uh, definitely was somebody who just did what he wanted to do on the court. Uh, he didn't have the team successful Bill Russell, but I think he was better individually than Bill Russell. So that's why I have him at number four. Uh, who do you have at number three? I've got Shaquille O'Neal at three. Okay, so we both have Shaq at three. Uh, so Shaq, when you when you talk about Shaq, now of course this is when I'm really, when Shaq started dominating is when I was really coming into being a sports fan and starting to develop my own opinions about sports. So with Shaq, it's a different level with me because like I saw during that time, it was like, wow, this dude is simply unstoppable. I still remember him dunking on, there's a famous picture that you might see floating around the internet of him dunking on five nets at the same time during the finals. <laughs> like there's, there was nothing you could do with Shaq in his prime. And I think Shaq kind of gets underrated because we focus so much on those three years that he had with the Lakers when he won back to back to back. They would forget about young Shaq with Orlando or even young Shaq with the Lakers where he was still a dominant figure but didn't have the pieces around him maybe to win a championship or he ran into uh, Kim Elijah one when he you know wasn't quite you know quite in his prime yet. So with Shaq so dominant, just so unstoppable and I have him at three on my list as you do as well, MVP four-time NBA champion, six finals appearances. Uh, Shaq, just unbelievable. I'm sorry, I just, I just took over your, your part there, but Shaq just was so dominant and was so unstoppable at his size. Like, if you put prime Shaq today, even with the way the game has changed, you know you might have to say, okay, Shaq, how can Shaq go out there and guard on the perimeter if they do pick and roll and they force him to switch? Shaq was athletic enough, especially young Shaq, to switch and to get out and to guard on the perimeter for a second and get back to his man. He was athletic enough to do that. Along with, once he got the ball in the post, there was nothing you could do. Absolutely nothing you could do. And we're talking about, like you mentioned earlier, the best era of centers. And he was so dominant during that time, especially in those early 2000s years, where once he got the ball, it could didn't matter if it was David Robinson, didn't matter if it was Dikembe Mutombo, it was Alonzo Mourning. Didn't matter who was down there, he was unstoppable. So Shaq, man, we both agree on Shaq at number three there. So yeah, who, you you're actually right about all of that. Yeah, <laughs> everything and, and a lot more. He he basically, from a physical standpoint, just was he was unstoppable. You know, that's basically just the easiest way to put it. He was unstoppable at some point. Uh, you know. Shaq didn't have the the um, longevity with regards to the domination, but when he dominated those years that he dominated, he dominated at a whole other level. Yeah, no, he definitely did. So we agree on Shaq at number three. Who do you have at number two? I've got Bill Russell at number two. Okay. And the, the, the crazy part about this is everybody, you know, you can, you're going to look at it from a lot of different points of view. The one thing, I mean, Bill dominated, but he was such a good team player that they uh, allowed him. Now, obviously, you got to also realize that, you know, like you said, he had a bunch of Hall of Famers with him. And he also had, I mean, the, 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 um, 
basketball in the NBA was not, it was all the best players because it wasn't as diluted, but you also did not have the greatest, I, I'm going from my opinion, in that particular time period, didn't have the greatest competition. It was one of those deals where they, Boston was so good that it was very few teams that could compete with them. Yeah. You know, they, they had too many, they had too many, like as you would put Hall of Famers. Um, so, but he, he was an anchor for all of that. So you got to give him his props for that. Yeah, you know, and the fact that uh, he played the game specifically, it wasn't, for him, it wasn't about stats. It was specifically about game. Yeah. And that's what he went out to do, and that's what he did. You know, he, when he went with championships, you know, he, even though he may not have the stats of a lot of other guys, still got to put him somewhere up there near the top. For sure. No, I definitely agree with the points that you made. And like you said, it's really hard to rate him because he had such a great team in an era that didn't have teams that could compete with that. So it's really hard to rate him. So I can see why you have him that high. But I just have him a little lower because I thought other centers may have been individually better while he had better teams. And that's one of the reasons I have Akeem Olajuwon at two. Akeem Olajuwon, I believe, could have had just as many championships and finals appearances as Shaq if he had the teammates Shaq had. Yeah, I remember Shaq in his first finals appearances had Penny Hardaway, who was first team all NBA and was on pace to be one of the best guards we've ever seen before his knee got messed up. Then he got to play with Kobe Bryant, who of course we know is a top 10 player all the time. Then he got to play with Dwayne Wade, who a lot of people view as the third best shooting guard of all time for his finals appearances. Hakeem Olajuwon, I mentioned Ralph Sampson, who was a very good player, but not on the level of Penny Hardaway, Kobe Bryant, or Dwayne Wade. For his first championship, the second leading scorer on that 94 Rockets team was Otis Thorpe. A lot of people don't even know who that is, who are my age. Otis Thorpe was the second leading scorer on that team. And then on the second championship team, they got Clyde Drexler, and that's the best player that, of course, that Akeem Olajuwon has played with. But the reason I have Akeem Olajuwon at number two, I believe he's the best defensive player of the modern era. So when I think of the modern era, I'm talking about from 1980 till now. You look from that, from then to now, no one had the impact defensively that Akeem Olajuwon had. He's number one all-time in blocks by a mile. A lot of times when we talk about records that will never be touched, we talk about John Stockton's assists. Uh, we talk about maybe Barry Bonds' home run record or there's some other records out there that we talk about. Hakeem Olajuwon's block record will never be touched, especially with the way the game is played today. No one's going to get close to it. Uh, the way I explain it to really break down the perspective of it, the Kimmy Mutombo is second all-time in blocks. That was the Kimmy Mutombo's job. His job was to block shots. He did it very well. He blocked shots all the way to the Hall of Fame, second all-time. Hakeem Olajuwon was the primary option on offense. And was still so dominant on defense that he finished his career with 600 more blocks than the Kimmy Mutombo, who's second all time. Like, that's crazy to think about the dominance of Akeem Olajuwon on defense. To have 600 more blocks than the Kimmy Mutombo, whose only job was to block shots and rebound. That's crazy. Akeem Olajuwon, also, we know about the dream shake, we know about the footwork. And when he had enough help, his team was a title contender. A lot of time, a lot of those years in Houston, you go back and look at those rosters, the rosters surrounding the Kim one were just not it. <laughs> the GM during that time should be arrested for lack of doing his job. Like, Hakeem Olajuwon didn't have help at all through a lot of his career. 
But then when you see he had help or just enough help, you see how dominant he truly could be. Uh, he's the only player in history who's top 10 all-time in blocks and steals as a center. He's number 10 all-time in steals. He's the only center who's in the top 50 all-time in steals. So a lot of times when people do these lists, they have Shaq ahead of Akeem Olajuwon, which I get because Shaq had more team success and offensively he was more dominant than Akeem Olajuwon, especially during those Lakers years. But I will argue that Hakeem was just as dominant defensively as Shaq was offensively during his time. And Shaq just happened to have better teams and better sidekicks compared to Akeem Olajuwon. So I got Akeem Olajuwon number two all time. Do you think I have him too high? No, you can you can make the argument that he's, you know, the way that he played the game and how much he dominated on both ends of the court, that he can be number two. Is he, you know, it, it's it just depends on you know the individual and what they what they like about that particular center. Yeah, and, that, and you also you also got to look at who they played, when they played, and how many the type of teammates they had as far as their team success, obviously. Yeah, and because of the lack of big-time sidekicks compared to Shaq, that's why I have Kim Olajuwon over Shaq, and I think Kim Olajuwon defensively. Shaq wasn't a bad defender, but he was never thought of as a great defensive player. While Kim Olajuwon, I think, is the greatest defensive player of the modern era, and it's hard to compare him against Bill Russell, so that's why I keep it to the modern era, but he's the greatest defensor, defensive player excuse me, of the modern era, along with being great offensively. That's why I have him number two. So I'm pretty sure we both have the same guy at number one. Uh, so I'll let you break down what made Kareem Abdul-Jabbar so great. Um, I guess if you look at it from the point of view that he basically had, besides making a layup, he had one dominating offensive move that nobody ever ever, ever could stop. And he scored enough points with it to be the, up until this past year, to be the leading scorer in the NBA for, what, a 34-year period or however long it was? Yeah, almost 40 years. Right. So, uh, and he, he, he also, three wasn't the, 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 the best defensive player. He played, played good, played good defense. But the fact that he was able to pretty much score on any center at any point at any time with one on one, the one on that one move, nobody could stop that one move. I don't care if you tried it, nobody could stop the one move that he had. Yeah. And he lived off of that and probably scored 85% of his, the, uh, the points that he scored in the NBA off the stop. Yeah, uh, the, the skyhook, when you go back and see videos of the skyhook, because to me, you know, I didn't, you know, of, of course, didn't watch Kareem live. And I go back and watch highlights, I'm like, just to see, I'm like, is this, was this dude really as good as the hype around him? And you go back and watch, you know, YouTube Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, especially young Kareem, against the, when he was, you know, playing for the Bucks, He was so unstoppable, and he was a better athlete than we give him credit for, because a lot of us think of him, in that old, you know, with the goggles and the bald head, those later years with the Lakers. But you go back to Fro Kareem with the Bucks. He was also a very good athlete. Could block shots, like you said. It wasn't a Kim Lajuan defensively, but was a good defensive player. 
had the sky hook and also could dunk on you. Also can if you were playing him too hard on the sky hook, he can get around you and dunk the ball. And he was so dominant in college that they changed the rules and they banned the dunk for a little while because he was so dominant. And that's probably why he developed the sky hook. Thinking about it now, I would love to, you know, hear him talk about why he developed it. it might be that might be part of the reason because they banned him from dunking the ball in college. And six time MVP. Right, he has an argument for being the GOAT, period. We always talk about Jordan and LeBron, but you also have to throw Kareem in that argument because of how dominant he was during his time to have six MVPs, to have all the championships, to be able to be the leading guy on the championship team, and also could be the second leading guy, of course, when, once Magic became what we know of as the greatest point guard of all time. Uh, Kareem was, you know, something different, man. And you're talking about just not the NBA, but his whole career from high school to the NBA. If you combine all of that, he's probably the most dominant player of all time from high school through his NBA years. Uh, so Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, we agree on number one there. So before we get out of here, can you please recap your list 10 through 1 for the people listening? Sure. I have uh, Nicole, Nicola Jokic at number 10, Bob McAdoo at number 9. I have Will Chamberlain at number 7, Patrick Ewing at number um, two. Yeah, Patrick Ewing at number eight, Rook Chamberlain at number seven, Moses Malone at number six, David Robinson at number five, Hakeem Olajuwon at number four, Shaquille O'Neal at number three, Bill Russell at number two, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Okay, that's a that's a very very solid list right there. Hard to argue against that one. Um, my ten, I have Patrick Ewing at ten, Dwight Howard at nine. David Robinson at 8, Nikola Jokic at 7, uh, Moses Malone at 6, Bill Russell at 5, Will Chamberlain at 4, Shaq at 3, Hakeem Olajuwon at 2, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at 1. Uh, for the people that we had in common, of course, we had Kareem at 1. Uh, we also had Shaq at 3 and Moses Malone at 6. So just to compare and contrast our list there, if you're listening, please give me your top 10 of all time. Let you let us know if you think we're crazy. Let us know if you agree. Let me know. I would truly appreciate the feedback. Uh, thank you, Dad, for coming on the show. I truly appreciate it. I want to say thank you to all the fathers out there who are doing great jobs and, you know, building those relationships with your kids that go into the future. You never know, you know, watching boxing on a Saturday night, watching Roy Jones Jr. do his thing. You never know that impact that could have. It had a big impact on me and led to what I'm doing now. Uh, so those little moments, the ones that you might not think about, are the ones that could have an impact on your kids later on that could lead to what they do for a career. Uh, so if it wasn't for my pops exposed me to boxing, I wouldn't have had the love I have for boxing now, and it wouldn't lead to the other love for basketball, football, of course, that led to me doing this for a career. Uh, so thank you, Dad, for the influence. Thank you to all the dads out there. And until next time, go, go real or go home.